Okay, so we looked at the first two parts of Romans. The very beginning section deals with the doctrine of authority and deals with the mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of God. The second section, chapter 1, verse 18, up through the middle of chapter 3, deals with the righteousness of God in Himself as judge. He's a righteous judge. His righteousness is revealed as a judge. Also, His righteousness is revealed in the law. And so we know what we are commanded to do. We are, know the righteousness that um, God has as a judge and the righteousness of the law. So then, go to page 3. Chapter, chapters 3, verse 21, all the way up to the end of chapter 5, is about the righteousness of God imputed to the believer in justification. And you'll remember, I tried to make a very stark, clear contrast between justification and sanctification. And that is an important, a deadly important distinction. If you mix justification and sanctification, you have another gospel. And if you have another gospel, you have no gospel. And so the doctrine of justification, what is it? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein... He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What we have here, the word justification, the rooted in the word just, right? The one who is just is the one who is righteous. And so this idea of justification is about being declared just being declared righteous by God as a judge. And so how are we declared just by God? If God lies and calls us just when we are not, then He is not a God of truth. He is not a truth teller. If He calls wickedness justice or righteousness, then He is not just. And so... What we have to deal with is how is it that we sinners can be justified? And the answer is we are justified because Christ takes our penalty that we deserve, makes full payment, removes our guilt so that we are innocent, and He also perfectly keeps the law as our representative so that we then are able to receive reward because His merits are counted to us. They're imputed to us. They're credited to us. So God can tell the truth. Because under the law, we are righteous. And He's just. Having satisfied the just demands of the law, and having provided for us the righteousness of Christ as a covering. So that we are, in one sense, sinners. And in another sense, we are righteous. Now, we have dealt with the problem of the guilt of sin through chapter 5. And that doctrine is captured in Val 5 for us in this church. It says, Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Right, guilty. Do you recognize that you deserve punishment? Do you recognize that you're powerless as a sinner? You're helpless. You can't do anything to save yourself. 
Therefore, repent of your sin. Right? Acknowledge your sin to be wrong and of your need of salvation. And believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. That's the vow that we have here. That's a confession of the Gospel in our church covenant. So then, we get to the end of that section, what we studied last time, and I want to read to you the last two verses of Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law came in so that sinfulness would be increased in its clarity and also that sinful desires would be more clear to people who hear the law and then still doing what they have heard is sinful, their guilt is increased. And so moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the transition text. Chapter 6 through 8 is about the righteousness of God not imputed. Chapter 6 through 8 is about the righteousness of God imparted to the believer in sanctification. So, what's sanctification? Glad you asked. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Remember, justification is an act. It's punctiliar. It's a moment in time. It happens once for all time. Sanctification is a work. It's ongoing. It's progressive. It's a process. It's a process. And so, what you have is the doctrine of sanctification is about the renewing of the man. It's the changing of the inward. It's not a covering. It's the changing of the inward. And so, sanctification causes us to be renewed after the image of God. It helps us to be more rational. It helps us to be better at understanding right purpose. It helps us to understand truth. It helps us to make right choices. So, sanctification is a renewal of the whole man after the image of God and rationality and knowledge, holiness, righteousness. And then because of that renewal, that change inwardly, we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So, this is captured in our church vow 6. Do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, having saved you from your sin, by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone? Mediation is when somebody stands between. And the mediatorial work of Christ is Christ's work standing between us and God. And so we look to that work of Christ as our mediator. Now because of that, because we've been saved, because He's God, because He's our God, because He's our Redeemer, the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, seeking to glorify Him in the whole of life. 
by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. So that is vow six. That is, since we have been justified, we want to grow in sanctification, and we will pursue a life that encourages growth in sanctification. And that's what we're going over today is about in Romans. The law came in, sin would abound, grace abounds more. So what we have, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, is about the fact that since we are justified, not by keeping the law, but since we're justified by grace, Therefore, we now need to see the reign of grace, and it's going to happen. So verses 1 to 11, not under law, but under grace. Objections are answered that rather than the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, leading to the indulgence of sin, instead, the gospel of justification by grace is the only method of securing sanctification. So, here's the common thing you hear. You're saying that if a person just believes they're saved, why why wouldn't they just live an awful life? Sounds like you don't understand the problem. Because I'm pretty sure that sin makes you miserable. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we were saved from sin. Why would you return to that tyrant slave master now that you've been freed? Your sin makes you miserable. You're not freed from sin in order to sin more. Don't you understand that the one you obey is the one you are a slave of? The wages of that master are no good. Oh, he pays. And when you get the wages, you will wish you had not been paid. It brings misery in this life. It wastes opportunity. It ruins what is good. We are not under law, therefore don't serve your old master, sin. The law was there to show you your condemnation. We're not under law in the sense of we're not being justified by law. You are under law in the sense that you know what's right and what's wrong by the law. We're under grace. Under grace. And being under grace, we are now able to be slaves of righteousness. And the wages of that master are far better. Now, we're not under law, we're under grace. So look at page 5, A. Roman numeral 1. If we have been saved from sin for the purpose of showing the grace of God, then should we continue to sin so that grace would be even greater or more fully displayed? That oven should be even. Forgive me. So, should we sin that grace may abound is the way it's worded in the text. In other words, isn't it actually good to do evil? Because that displays the grace of God. 
Okay, this is the same mistake that this comes up repeatedly in the book of Romans. People go, wait, 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 wait. If God uses evil for good, doesn't that mean evil is good? Right, the, the clever, finger-biting response. If we have been saved from sin for the purpose of showing the grace of God, then shouldn't we just continue in sin so the grace would even be greater? Okay, no. This destroys the distinction between good and evil. If you say that good and evil are the same, then you've just removed the law. There's no law. There's no knowledge of sin. And so, no, there's nothing to forgive. Remember? There's nothing to forgive. All choices are meaningless. There's no distinction between good and evil if evil's good and good's evil. You see that? When you make good and evil the same, there's no meaning There's no distinction between choices. If what's good is evil and what's evil is good, there's no meaning to any choice. And there's no grace because there's nothing to forgive. God uses evil for good, but that does not mean that we should do evil. We should do good. We ought to do what's good. We are commanded, we are obligated to do what's good. That's what the law does. It commands and obligates. It shouldifies. It makes sure you know what you should do. Now, it also tells us what we should not do. And so we know that we are breakers of the law. We just went through that in chapters 1 through 3. So, shall we let sin reign in order that grace might reign? Is another way you could put the question. No. That would mean there's no difference between the reign of unrighteousness and the reign of righteousness. Grace is reigning. Grace's reign is the reign of righteousness in those who once were dominated by sin. So this is the change. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to sin. You've been freed. Act like a free man. We're dead to sin. Those who are dead to sin should not walk in sin. Now, baptism is given as a sign of that, and so is circumcision. The Old Covenant gave that sign, and it pointed to the idea of the death, the pulling off of dead flesh. And it pointed to blood, and it pointed to a future seed. Baptism also points to death. Now, both of them also point to life. You know, over and over again in the Old Testament, you have circumcision of the heart, right? The removing of dead flesh and the living flesh is there. And then you also have, in baptism, there's the death, the buried and there's the resurrection. One of the things that's neat in the Old Testament is over and over again, you'll see it from Genesis 1 onward, is this heaven, earth, under the sea. Heaven, earth, under the sea. Heaven, earth, under the sea. Death is always talked about as going down. It's talked about as being under the sea. The idea that you You go down to Hades, to Sheol, the grave. 
baptism with water points to this idea of the, the death the, under the water, right? this washing that occurs. And Christ's resurrection above, and then he ascends. So there's death down, there's up back to earth, and then there's ascending to heaven. Now, there is this sort of process as well where Christ's work, he removes the demons from heaven, he's subduing the earth, and he will put an end to the temporary process of the place of torment in paradise, and he's going to make it so that there's a resurrection, a general resurrection. And then he's going to cast people into their permanent homes. Now, paradise versus the place of torment, there's a great difference between them. And I'm not going to go into that much further than I just have. But what we have here is to consider that baptism is a symbol for this idea of burial and death, and so is circumcision, and they're both also signs of resurrection and life. Now, we are dead to sin legally in Christ. We are dead to sin symbolically in baptism. We are dead to sin in repentance. We are counted as living in Christ. We have life by having faith. And we also... We are symbolically living, having received baptism. So we're dead to sin. Those who are dead to sin should not walk in sin. We died with Christ in our legal union with Him. We died to sin by repenting of sin. This is symbolized by baptism. We're alive with Christ by legal union. We have a claim to life. We have title to it. A right to it. In Christ. We possess life by having faith. We are thus free from sin and are slaves to righteousness and we ought to act like it. That's what this section is about. Legal union with Christ by the instrument of faith symbolized in baptism and the reality of living out living out righteousness. That's the reign of grace manifested so, chapter 6, verses 12 to 23, Paul exhorts Christians to live in a manner that fits with the gospel and the goal of displaying the glory of God in the earth. So, let's read some of the key verses. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, instruments, tools, but in the context of spiritual warfare, instruments are weapons. So do not present your members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin. Don't make your hands into things that kill what is good and defend what is wicked. Your members should be weapons to defend what is good and kill what is evil. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead 
and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. You see how wicked it is when people take that verse and they pull it out to make it, I don't have to obey the law of blessed condition. I can sin as I please and still have remission. That's not the point. The point is that's stupid. <laughs> they read the text at all, right? Is there, is there any consideration of the context that that's actually the objection being answered in the text? That's what's being addressed. You're not under law, but under grace. Therefore, act like it. You're not justified by the law. You're justified by grace. Act like it. The ones who think they're justified by law, they aren't, unless you're a righteous angel. You have that delusion? Anybody? Righteous angel. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one's slave whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is this saying, do good enough and you'll get the wage of eternal life? No. It's saying, you've been freed of justification by works. Therefore, act like you've been freed from sin. All right, so we get into chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, we're on page 6. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, talks about covenant death being exemplified in marriage and remarriage. Okay, so the point here is to introduce the category of covenant death. Marriage, covenant death, and remarriage, that's the analogy to explain that the death of another can be a means to provide freedom from a covenant, and therefore from the covenant of works. The death of another can provide freedom from a covenant. So the idea here is, you know, there's a covenant of marriage, a husband and wife are bound together, but if a husband dies, then there's death in that covenant, and the woman is no longer bound by the covenant of marriage. Her husband's dead. She can remarry. That is used as a point of analogy to help us to understand how Christ can die in a covenant and therefore free us from a covenant. That makes sense? He provides freedom from the covenant of works and entrance into the covenant of grace. The covenant death by another party in the covenant as a substitute in the covenant of works and in the covenant of grace is explained with its consequences. Being now under grace for justification rather than being under the law for justification, we are now free to do righteousness unto holiness. That's the reign of grace. Now, 
We get into chapter 7, verses 7 to 26. The law is insufficient to produce sanctification without the gospel. Verses 7 to 13, the law produces conviction for sin. Sin kills by means of the law, but the law is wholly just and good. Right? Sin uses the law to show us that we're dead. It also kills us. It uses the law to kill us. It makes it so that we, as breakers of the law, have death. Verse 13, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So in other words, the law is good, the law is not death. The law shows the deadness that we have by making sin more clearly present. It gives us a measure to use against our own sin. So the presence of sin is made more clear by using a measuring tool. Think about this. If you have a crooked line, it might look relatively straight to you. But if you put up a ruler right next to it that's straight, the crookedness becomes obvious. Okay, so the law is like a ruler that you can place next to a crooked line, and you go, oh, that thing's crooked. It makes the crookedness more obvious. Now, you might have an obviously crooked line. It could zigzag. That thing's avoiding U-boats. You can see the crookedness, but if you put a ruler next to it, it makes it even more clear. It makes our sin more apparent by causing our inward desires to be made more clear and more manifest by the law's clarity. So if you have wicked desires and you have the law in front of you, and the law says, don't take that cookie, and then you go, but I want the cookie. And you take the cookie and you go, I know I wasn't going to take the cookie, but this is really better than obeying that commandment. I took the cookie. And later on, you ate the cookie. The cookie's gone. You go, what have I done? No more cookies. I've already eaten it. So there, you have this way that the law helps us to see that what we have done is wrong. It provides greater clarity about our inward desires. So there's, there's this way in which it brings out our sin. The law brings out the sin of the unregenerate man. And it also makes more clear the distinction Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We have hope for victory over sin only in the Lord Jesus Christ. This text is talking about a believer, by the way. People want to say this is not about a believer. They are wrong. There is no sinless perfection in this life unless you're the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you holding to that delusion? That you are the Lord Jesus Christ? You are not. Now, This text is talking about a believer. The law comes from the Holy Spirit. I, of myself, right, all of us, we're carnal. We're of the flesh. We're not of the Spirit. We're of the flesh in ourselves. We have an evil nature since the fall. And being carnal, being fleshly, having an evil nature, means that we're sold under sin. We're slaves to sin. We have legal guilt and we obey the law of sin. People who are unbelievers, they never do anything good. They don't do anything good. They can't. It requires faith to do something that's good. And we can't generate faith of our flesh. 
What is of the flesh is flesh. What comes from flesh is flesh. What comes from the spirit is spirit. It requires a new birth. A new birth. Natural means, natural man, natural birth, they don't provide faith. The Holy Spirit gives faith. Of myself, I am carnal. I am sold under sin. I am guilty and I obey the law of sin. Now that comes, we come out of that. We've just talked about how we are free. We come out of that because the Holy Spirit gives us life. We come out of that because we're counted as righteous in Christ. We come out of that because not being under law, we're under grace. We have been saved by the death of another. Just like we talked about in that covenant of marriage, that death of another party can free you from a covenant. We have been freed from the covenant of works by the death of another, by the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, there's this problem of, okay, now, now, I have desires to do what's good. I don't understand what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not acting by faith. I have faith, but I'm not acting by faith. I am in my own nature and without understanding. I, I'm acting out of that old nature. I need to grow in intentionality. I need to act by faith. That's what Paul is pleading through here. Even when I will to do what's commanded, I don't practice what's commanded. We have that. You go, I really want to do this thing. I'm going to do this good work. It's going to be great. You get the opportunity to do the thing, and you go, maybe another time. Even when I will to do what's commanded, I don't practice what's commanded. Instead, the things that the law forbids and that I hate, I end up doing. I'm habituated to sin. There are triggers that are aligned to make it so that I sin. I am trained up in sin. I even look for ways to make it so that I'm ready, geared up to sin. And then I act sinfully with my members. I make them weapons of wickedness rather than weapons of righteousness. This is Paul's confession. This is the confession of every believer. We all sin, even being saved. So, is the answer just, oh well, life's hard, don't worry, someday you're going to die. Wait around for it. No. What we have is this section on sanctification coming up in chapter 8, we have a list of tools of sanctification Here are weapons to wage war internally. Here are weapons to put to death sin. Here are weapons to make it so that you have liberated your body more and more so that now your instruments, your weapons, your hands can be weapons of righteousness. This setup is the setup for, here's the problem, wage war. You think it's hard? You're right, it's war. This is not a playground, this is a battleground. Act like it. Fight, win, take the capital. Man's soul is not won easily. Take it over. You fight to make your hands instruments of war. This is an intermediate objective. 
You have to have self-government if you're going to do anything useful outside of yourself. You want to rule a house well? Govern yourself well. You want to rule a church well? Govern your house well. You want to rule a state well? Make sure the church is ruled well. There is a process of conquest. And if you don't start and take over your body and make it subject to the law of God so that the reign of grace is manifest in the weaponization of your hands, then you will not do anything useful. That is what we are called to. That's what this passage all the way through chapter 8 is about. It's about victory over this. There's an acknowledgement that the enemy is hard to conquer. What did you expect? God was going to glorify himself by having some sort of weakling that you had to overcome? What a great show. No. God shows his greatness by having David beat Goliath, not Nancy. Verse 16 talks about, we do things that the law forbids that we sometimes, and to some degree, want to not do. This inconsistent wanting to not do what we end up actually doing is in agreement with the law that the law is good and that we are bad. Because I'm dead to sin in Christ legally, I no longer am the one who sins legally. So you don't lose your justification by sinning. Good news. It's good news. Nobody else happy about that? I'm happy about that. We don't lose our justification by sinning. You lose the opportunity to do something useful, though. You do something useless. You do something worse than useless. It's destructive. Sin continues to dwell in me, and it is acting in a way that has already been paid for by Christ. I'm not concerned that I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm concerned to stop sinning because sin is bad. Read the above. Verses 18 and 19. In my fallen nature, nothing good dwells. The Spirit dwelling in me makes me will to do good. But I do not know how to perform what's good. I cannot find the way. I can't find the means of performing what's good. If I'm sinning, while I judge the sin, a sin, then that shows regeneration. You're not going to think that evil is evil properly unless you've really been saved. You're not going to think that good is good properly, unless you've really been saved. Your judgment of good and evil is made clear by the Holy Spirit giving you life. Now, the wicked make judgments about what's evil. And they violate their own judgments. But only those who have faith have a proper view of good and evil. Now, when you sin, and you realize it's sin, do not fall into a place where you think, oh no, there's nothing that can be done here. Don't be condemned. Instead, when you recognize your guilt, you move to the gospel. Recognizing the gospel, you see the grace of God. Seeing the grace of God, you should be grateful. And then manifest the reign of grace. That's the pattern. You are going to sin. Stop. 
at that point, look to Christ. And then, obey him. Not to get his favor, but because you have his favor. If I'm sinning while I judge sin to be sin, that shows regeneration. That shows legal guilt has been removed. Don't sit in a place of condemnation. Realize the better condition of being free from this slavish obedience to sin. So then there's this discussion about the inward man and the outward man, the members of the physical body. And this fact that you still use your members to do evil. And so there's this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ. Who will deliver me from the dominion of sin in my mind? Christ. Who will deliver me from the body not obeying the law of my mind? Christ. And so what does Paul do in order to set us up to now teach us about doing righteousness? He reminds us in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He reminds us, he reminds us of the gospel. He pulls us to guilt, he pulls us to sin, he shows us that we are sinners. He shows us that we deserve condemnation and then he shows us we're not condemned. And he does that in order to provide motivation. Those who are regenerated are being sanctified being sanctified because they have been given spiritual life. They've been given the knowledge of God by the Holy Spirit. So we're not condemned because the demands of the law were satisfied in Christ for us. And being regenerated, we are now those who receive increasing life from the Holy Spirit. And there's a list of a bunch of tools of sanctification. We're encouraged to grow in faith. We're encouraged to grow in assurance of our salvation. We're encouraged to have hope that we will overcome sin. We're encouraged to nourish our faith by focusing our minds on the things of the Spirit, the Scriptures, and to put off the old man by not thinking on unprofitable things. Putting on the new man by thinking on profitable things. Verses 12-17, to we're on page 8. Adoption is put forward as a grounds of hope. We need to acknowledge what our duty is. That's a tool. We need to look to the fact that God disciplines us and causes suffering for us. That's a tool. God chastens us as sons. We are not bastards. We are legitimate sons. He disciplines us. He gives positive blessing to us. That's a tool for us to grow. He has made us sons. He's adopted us. He's given us privileges. Thinking on that helps you to grow in sanctification. Encouragement from the Holy Spirit to pray is a tool of sanctification. The future hope of what we're going to receive in glory is a tool. These are all things, as we think upon them, they help us to subdue the flesh and to quicken the new man, to enliven. You know, quicken, 
doesn't just mean make faster. Look at your, your fingernail. There's the quick. It's the living part. You know where that part is? It's further away from the end, not closer to the end. That quick, that living part. Quick means living. And by analogy, it means fast. Because fast, you know, living people are faster than dead people, generally speaking. And so the idea that there's a quickening, there's an enlivening of the new man by thinking upon these promises. Then chapter 18, chapter 8, verses 18 to 28, A. Affliction in this life versus the glory to be received by and revealed in the saints. And the upholding of the saints by the Holy Spirit through the gift of hope. This is what this section is about. So we have another tool. We contrast our present suffering with the future glory. If you're suffering right now and it's hard to get through, focus on the mission. You focus on the suffering, you're going to stop moving. You're running a race and your ankle hurts, you're going to stop moving. You're trying to accomplish something and it's boring or hard or whatever, you're going to stop doing it if you focus on that. If you focus on, I need to complete this so something else can happen. I need to accomplish this mission so that I can get something good that helps you to move through it. When you're suffering in this life, you think about the glory to come. That helps you to carry on. The hope that the goal of creation will be accomplished. The world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Curse will be removed. Blessing will be increased. That helps you to get through. Knowing that the Spirit gives you power to pray effectually. Your prayers won't be wasted. God's going to use your prayers to bring blessing to you and to the church and glory to His name. They're not wasted. Lawful prayers in faith, mediated by Christ to the Father, empowered by the Spirit, are not wasted. Verses 28b through 30, predestination is put forward as a ground of hope. You're worried about losing it? Don't worry. God predestined it. How do you know if you've been predestined for good? Well, do you believe? Because if you believe, you're justified. If you're justified, you're adopted. If you're adopted, you're going to be sanctified. And if you're going to be sanctified, you're going to be glorified. Golden chain. If you have one, you're going to get them all. You can't lose your salvation. There's a perseverance of the saints. There's a preservation of the saints. You're not going to lose it. You are guaranteed victory. Just get up and start shooting. The enemy will be defeated. You will overcome. The Holy Spirit will empower you. He will preserve you. You will not lose your faith. God is unchangeably, all-powerfully, all-knowingly seeking the good of the elect. And if you believe the gospel, you're elect. And that means that God is unchangeably, all-powerfully, and all-knowingly seeking your good. See, the problem is, Sometimes people seek your good and then they change their mind. And you go, ah, oh, I thought they were going to help me out. No, I changed their mind. God's not going to change his mind. He's going to help you. Sometimes people try to help you and they're ineffective at it. They can't make it happen. Tried real hard, couldn't do the thing. Oh, I was relying upon you. Yeah, I just couldn't make it happen. God can make it happen. God does not get held up by things. God does not get stuck in traffic. God gets there and he does it. Now sometimes people want to help you, and sometimes people have the ability to help you, but they're just too dumb. And they want to help, 
but they're harmful helpers. Doing the wrong thing. And you go, you know, it'd be real nice if you weren't here. God will not change his mind. God will not be ineffectual. And he's smarter than you. And if you think he's not helping, if you think he's hurting, guess which one of you is wrong? So when you think something is for your harm, if you believe the gospel, you're wrong. It's for your good. And so this promise, this hope, helps us to see that everything that comes is for our good if we believe the gospel. And so predestination of the end and predestination of every detail is a ground of hope in the golden chain. Chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. The work that has already been done by Christ for justification and sanctification is a ground of hope. He started it. He's not going to fail to complete it. Verses 35 to 39. God's unchangeable love is a ground of hope. He loves us. He's unchanging. He's not going to stop loving us. And the ones He loves, He saves. And so we get to the end here of the chapter. I'm going to read to you verses 37 to 39. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. What are we going to conquer? flesh, the world, the devil. And not just conquer, we will enjoy the spoils. We are sons of the king. The plunder is given to us. There is nothing that's created that can separate you from the love of God. And if God loves you, he's not going to change his mind because he's unchanging. So what does that mean? If you have the love of God, you can't lose it. He's not going to change his mind, and nothing else can take you from his hand. Not even you. Because you're created too. And if you think you're God, that's another delusion. And we should talk about it. You cannot lose your salvation. You are not God. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.